Father, thank you for the blessing of the church. There may be those here who don't have close relationships with their family. Maybe there's been something that's damaged that. But here is the family of God. This is where we've been brought into an eternal family. We have become sons and daughters of our heavenly father. And he loves it when his children get together. He loves it when his children eat together, worship together, study together. This brings you glory. So Lord, thank you for the gathering of saints today. Thank you for all that are here. Thank you for those who are online with us tonight, Lord, who could not be here for one reason or another, Lord. May you continue to give us a desire to be together. Lord, we want to ask that you bless this weekend. So many exciting things happening. So many neighbors and friends and co-workers have been invited. We ask that your spirit draw them here, Lord. That they would hear the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure what service I'm most excited about uh, for this weekend. Uh, Good Friday is going to be a phenomenal service. It is made up of short messages by uh, several of us who will be teaching, and then Hayward will lead us in a song, and then we'll teach a little farther, and we're going to work our way right through the crucifixion of Christ. Very somber passage when you look at the death of our Lord, and yet, and yet, he had to do it. He had to go through that for us in order for us to gain salvation. Uh, Sunday morning at uh, sunrise, uh, we're going to look at one of the accounts. We're going to follow the ladies in those dark early morning hours as they make their way to the tomb and, and through the scriptures experience what they see, what, what happens there, what they engage with with angels. And then, then we'll run behind uh, John and Peter as they race to the tomb. And we'll look at that as the sun is coming up over our trees here from the east there. And then Sunday morning, our 1045 service, I'm very excited about this. Um, I'm, as I've been working on it, I was actually working on it today a little bit, I, and I answer the question, where does my joy come from? You know, you easy to say, oh, Jesus, it's always the right answer, isn't it? But the more I begin to pursue this resurrection and this term joy and link them together through the scriptures, it's extraordinary joy. And so Sunday morning at that 1045, if you want some joy, you should come to that. (laughs) Because we're going to look at the joy of the resurrection. This inexpressible joy that 2,000 years later we still uh, have have tremendous joy from. So what a a great time we're going to have. Some of the, uh, Hayward and Rick and all of the worship teams just have such wonderful music prepared for Sunday morning. So we look forward to great service together. I've been stuck in Exodus 34, as you notice. This is my fifth message on this. Um, Troy always bothered me. He goes, how many, you know, <laughs> times are we going to be here? And well, this is uh, sermon number five on this, and I'll be done with it tonight. But it, it, it's probably one of the most exciting passages. I mean, to myself, Brian Sheely and I were talking about just Exodus 34, such a love for it because it points so forward to Christ and God's glory is in such on display and yet we see it even greater in Christ. And yet as we look closer at this passage and I'm going to drop into verse 18 and finish off the text here. It isn't that Israel has become better. <laughs> yes, I, I believe they, there was remorse and possibly repentance with some of them, you know, if not many of them. They stood before their tents and they saw the gravity of their sin of worshiping a calf, but it's not as though they're, they become more acceptable to God. We don't become more acceptable to God because we're sorry we did something. We become acceptable to God because God makes us holy in, in, in a new covenant sense through Jesus Christ. But here we have this nation. They have failed God. They have broken the first two commandments before Moses can get off the mountain And so Moses needs to see God, and God says, here's my goodness, I'm going to pass it in front of you. And and we we look at this passage, and as we recall, 
God shows his goodness through his word, not through visual. He displays his character through the word of God. Moses doesn't need to see God because you can't see God. So all he gets, and I shouldn't say it that way, what he gets is the word of God and it is tremendous to him. He's overwhelmed with it. And all of the goodness of God, as we looked, I think last week, um, we looked into John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. All of the goodness of God is revealed in Christ Jesus. He has the full deity, right? He, the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form, Colossians chapter 2. But when we come back to the group of people before the mountain here, the nation of Israel, or even when we look at ourselves... It's wrong to think that we make ourselves better by doing something. Maybe you feel better if you took communion. Okay, God, I feel a lot closer to God. That's really dangerous. You're walking into works type of thinking. We're right with God because of what Christ has done. And yet our sins can make us feel distant. I was reading on this a little bit in some of these guys' thoughts um, on this passage and this understanding of getting into the presence of God. And Sinclair Ferguson said something very interesting. He said, it's misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. People say that all the time. Well, God, just come as you are. Well, God doesn't accept us the way we are. In fact, Ferguson says this. He says, rather, he accepts us despite the way we are. Now, that's right thinking, isn't it? He goes on to say this. He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sake. That's pretty pretty strong statement isn't it you you, and and that's what jesus said you're not going to get to the father unless you come through me right and so this movement within america that's flood around the world that god needs you and and you're you know go get him you're a great guy and and you know you're just going to make heaven all that much better no no god accepts us despite the way we are Now, Ferguson went on to say this. He says, nor does he mean to leave us the way he found us. I love that. But to transform us into the likeness of his son, that is his goal. And though we're in an Old Testament passage, we think about biblical theology. Everything is flowing towards the cross. That final lamb is going to be Christ. It'll surpass the earthly Passover by Christ being able to be the Passover lamb for us far more greater than any lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. Spurgeon, writing on this subject as well, said, God neither chose them, Israelites, or us, if you can put us in there, nor called them because they were holy. But he called them that they might be holy And holiness is the beauty, the glory produced by his workmanship in them. So God does a great work in us to cause us, as Colossians says, Colossians chapter 1, to be holy and blameless before him. So I just want to set that scene as here is this nation. They are not special in any way. In fact, God says you weren't greater, you weren't bigger. I didn't choose you because of who you were. In fact, he calls them stiff-necked. I want to look at one passage in the New Testament to kind of sum up my introduction here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I don't think anybody gets into heaven without the glory of Christ. You have to reflect him in some way. (laughs) And that's through salvation through him alone. You have to taste and see and reflect the glory of the Lord. No one will get in who does not reflect the master. There will be no one allowed in who doesn't reflect Christ. We know these verses. We've looked at them in our series on salvation. But look at verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by God. There's that love that God set upon us. A sovereign, glorious love. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. There's his, 
his election, his predetermining our future, his foreknowledge, all of God's sovereignty and salvation wrapped up in that statement. Through sanctification, by the Spirit, meaning he sets us apart, it is the work of the Spirit, and he gives us faith that's based in truth. Now look at verse 14. And it was for this he called you through the gospel. Now look at this. This is why I made that statement before I read these verses. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't be in heaven if you don't have the glory of Christ. (laughs) It's one big bright shining city with Jesus in the middle and and I, I think when you think about the glory of the Lord, it'll be so clear who has the glory of the Lord and who doesn't. And God will certainly separate the sheep from the goats. Now think about the new covenant by grace alone. It doesn't let up on the goal of pursuing holiness. Now we're going to go back and look at, he gives some things to help the nation Help the nation enjoy worship and and help the nation stay away from sin. He's going to give some of those. We'll go back and look at those just briefly here before we look at Moses and his shining face and to end it up. But the new covenant where we come through by Christ alone and grace alone and all of that doesn't let up on the goal of us living holy, pleasing lives before God. God wants his children to resemble his son. So if he saved you and placed you that we would gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, then obviously he desires us to grow in our sanctification, to grow in our lives that are pleasing to him. Does that, is that fair to say that? Paul says, walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. So when we look at this, and though it's law, the law is being handled down and he's giving them feasts and festivals and things to do and firstborns and so forth and all of that, his goal is to bring them to a need of him so that they would see him, know who he is, and walk with him. And that's God's goal in the New Testament as well. So let's look at a couple of thoughts this evening. God renews the opportunity to live out the divine calling as he sets apart people right god renews this opportunity remember it had been broken they worshiped this golden bull calf god was said that's it i'm gonna just take you moses and we're gonna start over but moses mediates and god's testing moses and so now he comes back he wants to see his glory god has shown his glory and he tells moses i'm going to renew this opportunity for them to live out the divine calling as a set apart people and so he begins to give them. And so after forgiveness and warning are delivered by God, he, he shows positive action. Here's some things that I want you to do that will help you understand who I am and to walk with me. And he's already given many of these commands, but he wants them reiterated in, in, um, in sight of their idolatry. With, with the idolatry behind them, he wants them to be reminded of the truth of God. I thought about this today, and I thought, Lord, there's times when we sin... And we've fallen away from you. Our sin has caused us to stumble and fall. That when we come back and look at your truths, they're often sweeter when we've repented. And so I think the Lord is bringing these back in front of them. Verse 18, notice there he reminds them that there's two feasts that he wants to keep. I hit this last week, so I'm going to breeze through some of this. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, it's later combined with the Passover. It's the idea here that he does not want them to forget that he rescued them out of Egypt. Put it in a new, new, new covenant sense. Let's never forget that God res- rescued us out of depravity. We were enslaved to our sin. God rescued us. Verse 19 through 20, here he begins to take on this aspect of the firstborn, right? He wants the firstborn given to him. And there are several reasons. We, we mentioned, number one, that the firstborn was put to death in Egypt. The sin of... Egypt cost them dearly. God wanted them to remember that he spared their firstborn, right? And of course, there's a Christological understanding that God was going to send his firstborn, and his firstborn would be sacrificed for for all those who were going to believe. But there's also a great lesson that I think Moses um, was to teach the nation that if you give me your firstborn, this will pass this on from generation to generation. Keep teaching these truths down. And so he was supposed to tell 
he was to tell them, give me your firstborn. Um, the firstborn was the right hand of the father, right? Everything he had, the firstborn had. And so he was now to lead that family towards the things of God. Lamb's blood would temporarily, temporarily hold off the redemption, but, but God wanted this to be passed down through their generation so that they would come and they would bring an offering. And you notice there's a donkey in this, and we talked about this last week, and without going into all of this, um, what I think he's doing in verse 20 there is he's saying, look, um, from the least of the offering, which would be a donkey's firstborn, you say, well, a donkey, it's just a beast of burden, it's an unclean animal. I mean, why do you want that? And I think what God's saying, I want the least of what you have to the greatest of what you have, which would be your lamb. I want you to offer that to me in remembrance of what I've done for you. Notice he says there in verse 20, none shall appear before me empty-handed. See, he was teaching the nation to worship God. It's good for us to learn to give to the Lord. Deuteronomy 16, 17 said, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessings of the Lord your God, which he has given you. And so we all give according to what God has done. And they installed a, a, a 10%. It actually was much more than that. If you do the study, it's about 32 to 33% of all of their income they were to give to the Lord. But they were to give according to what God had given them. And this worship was to be expressed in great gratitude to God. We give out of gratitude. And you hear our pastors week after week as we prepare for um, offering and, and the baskets go around or you give online or you give through your envelopes or however you give. Um, you just hear them week after week. Give from your heart. Give cheerfully. Give out of joy of what the Lord uh, has done. You know what they're saying? Be a gospel giver. I think that's what they're saying. Is that correct? I mean, that's, I, I hear that. Look at verse 21 with me. Here he begins to work on the Sabbath here. And I gave you two reasons last week, and I just want to highlight these again. Uh, in the Old Testament, the two reasons to keep the Sabbath that are reminded over and over is one, that God is creator, and the second is that he brought you out of Egypt. So if you're going to be a Sabbatarian, you need to pick one of those. And if you pick one, what are you going to do with the other? And I think what it teaches us is this was for the nation of God. It was a command given to them. But it was also a command to make sure that we take time to worship. And so we come together several days out of the week, don't we now? In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, really, if you study that text, says every day is the Sabbath for a believer in the New, in the New Covenant, right? Every day is. But yet, there's a first day of the week that we gather together to remember what God has done and preach his word and sing praises to him. Verse 22, we were reminded that he wanted them to have two feasts that he wanted to make sure were in their times of worship. There was the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Ingatherings there, you'll notice. And the first was connected to the Passover. Later, the Feast of Weeks and the Passover became together. And this was celebrated seven weeks after the Passover. And so there's this time between the, the Feast of uh, the Passover and uh, a Passover unleavened bread and excuse me, the unleavened bread, feast of unleavened bread, and the Passover became one later on. But then there was this time, this time from seven weeks after that Passover would come this feast of weeks, and it was a reminder of God's provision. He was going to provide for you. It usually came right at the end of the wheat harvest. Stop and give God thanks. Something even the pilgrims did in our nation. They gave thanks after harvest and. I think we kind of lose that when you buy everything from Publix. <laughs> but when you grow something, and those maybe that struggle to grow things, some people have green thumbs, they can grow anything, and other people just, man, I got a tomato, one. You know, so you kind of, you're kind of excited about that, but it's a wonderful time, and harvest time in our family was great because that was harvesting calves were getting weaned off and set to sale, and hay was in the barn, and it's just a, it was a precious time. But God says, make sure you remember I gave you that. Take time that you don't rob me of that. Now look at verse 23, and I want to pick up some things from here. Three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord, God, the God of Israel. So now he brings in this word Adonai, this, this term Adonai and Yahweh, and he links these together, and here he's really marking the sovereignty of God. But he is targeting men here, right? Get the men before me regularly. This is God reminding Moses of what I want you to tell them. 
And you know, and you've heard me say this before, and other men, if you get the men, you most likely will get the rest of the family. Down through the ages of God's people, women have easily come into the presence of God to worship him and study him and know him. And even today, we find in the church, women will gather very easily to study. And yet men struggle in that. And male, spiritual male or male headship in the home is lacking. But notice in this verse, very early on in the birth of this nation, as this, as this nation grows and is getting ready to head for a promised land, almost, because they're going to fall again, but he wants spiritual male leadership, and it's a priority to him. And boy, is that under attack. In the media today, in the world's thinking, and a lot of what's coming into this new administration, men are just worms and problems and, you know, how sad. And, and ladies, you have to help with us as well because men have been conditioned to be nothing today. God has set men apart to be the spiritual leaders. He's given them a unique role in their home, a unique role in the job, in the church, and so forth. Just like he's given unique roles to women to bring him glory, he has given men. And God saw this as such an important priority. This is one of the reasons why we... are trying to figure out how to bring back things for our men here, more than just the, uh, the discipleship that we're doing, but some conferences and time away where men can get before the Lord and each other and encourage each other. It was the downfall of Israel. It was the downfall of Israel. They did not hold to what God taught them, and it started in the individual home. And this is why we put such an effort on discipleship. We want you in a discipleship group, men. We want to meet with you. We want to pray with you. We want to weep with you. We want to read scriptures together with you. We want to grow with you. Notice God says this is important. I, Adonai, Yahweh, am saying this. It's not something that comes from the leadership of Israel or the leadership of the church. It is God himself ordaining this. Now look at verse 24 with me. For I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your borders, and no man shall covet your land when you Go up three times a year to, be a, to appear before the Lord your God. So notice that God says, look, I'm going to drive out all your enemies. And I'm going to give you a promised land so big, you're not going to have to covet your neighbor's place. Now think about this. You're living in a tent since you left, Israel, uh, left Egypt. And even there, the accommodations probably weren't great, as, as big as the nation had grown. And you're thinking, well, I got this little, <laughs> little spot from my tent. And he's already handed down Ten Commandments that teach don't steal and covet and those type of things because there was such close living. And so he says, look, I'm going to give you land so much and I'm going to bring you together and let you look each other in the eye and create accountability that you won't trespass against your neighbor. It's God's rich blessing for them if they'll walk with him. Look at verse 25 and 26. You shall not offer the blood of the sacrifice with Leaven bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover to be left over until morning. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Well, I think there's three things that he's hitting here that I think are very important, and I think we can um, apply them to ourselves. First, he says, keep worship pure. So leaven was uh, taught at that Passover. You sweep out your house, you're going to get rid of all of that leaven. Us has to be out of it because it represented sin. And a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven can get and just, it moves through the air. Um, I don't know if many of you have ever been to San Francisco and you've had their sourdough bread. Um, we haven't tasted anything like that out here. Um, it's just unique. And they have been winning the sourdough bread contest that is in Paris every year for the last, oh, dozen years or so. And they lost for many, many years. They couldn't beat Paris. And they figured out because they took their starter over there and they took their mold over there, but they couldn't get it over there without picking up yeast on the way. <laughs> Airplanes, cargo, all of that stuff. So they created this cargo container that was sealed. So no other air from Paris or anywhere else could get in it, and they began to win that every year. Well, that's a good illustration, isn't it? <laughs> There's some things we need to seal out of our lives. And so he's telling them, look, I want to keep your worship pure. When you remember the Passover and this feast of unleavened bread, make sure there was no leaven with my sacrifice. 
Remember, it's pointing towards Jesus Christ. He is the perfect lamb. And so what a great reminder of keep worship pure. Number two, and I'll drop down to verse 26 for this in this order, um, is keep labor pure. Remember what you work for, men, women. You shall bring the very first of your first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You got to remember, everybody was a farmer back then. <laughs> you, know, you may have sold stuff, but you, everybody grew something, right? Everybody had lambs or goats or something that they were... It's just that was the way you survived. You didn't have drive throughs And so God says, look, I want to keep your labor pure. Give me first what you grow. I think that's pretty cool. And that's one of the reasons what we teach on, on giving to the Lord is when you sit down and do your bills, give to the Lord. Put them on the top of your list. And, I, and we have to be careful with that, that you don't get all crazy and legalistic on it. But man, the gospel should drive you. First thing, we get to the Lord. Right on the top of when we do bills, give to the Lord. Give to the Lord. He wants to keep our labor pure because you know what? Labor can become impure pretty quick, huh, guys? Pretty soon we're working for the man, whoever that is. <laughs> and we're working just to pay bills. And, and our checkbook is a thing that's frustrating and hurtful and sad because there's never enough in it. And, and we, pretty soon there's just no worship in our checkbook. See, he wants, he wants us to labor, keep our labor pure for the Lord. It's a reminder. I remember teaching, when I began teaching men early in our first church plant, I got to the aspect in DTP that, um, that God wants to be first on the job. I remember men coming to me and repenting and saying, God, uh, Pastor, my heart has been so hard in this area. And as we worked through it in DTP, that, that they began to, uh, the, the aspect of realizing that work was uh, a mission field and it was where God sent us and it was, we labored to, to bring him glory with our hands and our minds and whatever we did. It changed men's minds. They began to say, God, I've hated my job till now and that is sinful. You have placed me where I'm at until you remove me. God caused me to see joy and be thankful for what you've given me. And may I honor you and keep my labor pure. Men, labor gets unpure really quick, doesn't it? It's something we have to keep track of. That we're serving the Lord as we serve others or when they may are calling me. The third one there goes back to the end of verse 25. Is keep the Passover meal sacred. So he said, look, I want you to have this Passover meal. You're to eat this lamb. You're to have your shoes on and your staff in your hand, your belt on your, uh, around your waist, and you're to be ready to go, right? But it really becomes, well, well, we didn't eat all that. Uh, you know, let's finish it tomorrow. It's not that big a deal. Let's finish it tomorrow. He's trying to keep the Passover meal fresh. He's trying to keep it pure. This is a sacred thing. I am coming in. My death angel came. And if you didn't have that blood on there and you weren't prepared to go and, and eaten that lamb the way and prepared it the way I told you to because that lamb was your Passover lamb. Death passed by you because you handled that correctly. Don't mess around with it. Keep it pure. And I, I think this, I, I would say this points to us of keeping the gospel pure. I was having a conversation with a dear sister beforehand, and we were talking about um, a particular religion um, that people have chose to be a part of, and, and you can pick almost any religion, but uh, they teach a certain thing in there, but yet um, they can't find it in their scriptures. And if they actually held to the scriptures, they would never teach that. And what's happening in the world of religion is there's liberals in Islam, there's liberals in Mormonism, there's liberals in, in um, Jehovah Witness. They don't hold to what they call their sacred writings. And they're all over the map, right? There's some Mormons believe in all kinds of things that many don't believe in. And yet it points to us, and I think this is the point here, is, is for Riverbend Community Church, we believe the scriptures, all of them. And we're not here to pander to the culture. And so we look at what the Bible says about marriage, men and women. And we hold to that. And I'm telling you, we are going to get creamed on this in time. They will not put up with it. You can see what they're doing right now. 
And they're attacking universities and Christian colleges and seminaries like crazy. And their goal is to get to the church eventually. We hold things sacred. And you start messing with all of that, guess what you'll do with the gospel? You'll quit teaching on sin. You'll keep teaching on hell. Oh, that's right. We're already not doing that. I've had some really encouraging responses from you um, since Sunday sermon on hell. And if you weren't here and didn't listen to it, I really encourage you to listen to that. And said, I don't re- one person wrote me an email and said, I don't remember the last time I heard somebody teach on hell. See, what happens is when we don't keep things of God pure, we move to what the culture says. The culture starts to drive, not the scriptures. And we're in danger of that. The American church has slid so far. And we, we don't want to do that. We want to keep the gospel pure. And so that means we hold the word of God pure. I hope that's clear there. Of course, um, in all of that, in verse 26, don't boil uh, a baby goat in its mom's milk. Because that's what the Canaanites did. And it's mean. And it's dumb. Verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these things down. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and Israel. Well, here, I love this, because what God now here tells tells Moses is, look, I'm the covenant God, and I want this in writing. I want this ratified. My spirit is going to put this on your heart, and you're going to write these things down, ratify these words for my people. And certainly the commandments were put on new tablets, but we realize that more was given than were on that you know, on those tablets, right? This is the beginning of the canon of scriptures, right? In some ways. Moses, through those 40 years, is going to write the book of Genesis and so forth and Exodus and Leviticus and so forth. God said, I want this written down. I love this verse. I sat and just meditated on this. Write this down. Aren't we so grateful that God has written down what he wants us to believe? And that does not change. We have the original languages. We study them in that. We translate them that way and we know what God is saying. And doubtless, Moses returned to camp and, and God caused him to remember all these things, right? Because, man, there's instructions that come later on, but many of it was given to him on these 40 days on the mountain, right? The Pentateuch. And we're still reading it today. Look at verse 28. So, there, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he did not eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, clearly God just supernaturally sustains Moses here, right? As he enjoyed this privilege of this extended divine audience i mean what an amazing experience and and i I just thought about this and i said nothing is more important than the presence of god not eating not drinking there's nothing more in presence than more important than being in the presence of god the mediator wrote this later moses himself deuteronomy 10 10 he said i moreover stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time so now he's got 80 nights and 80 days with yahweh right And the Lord listened to me that time also, he says in Deuteronomy 10.10. And the Lord was not willing to destroy you. (laughs) Oh, there's the work of the mediator. All right, second thought. The effects of the divine presence of God. This is a fascinating little passage here. Look with me at verse 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that his skin of his face shone because he was speaking with him. Well, it seems that Moses did not know or fully understood what the impacts of being in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights was physically on him, right? And certainly, think about this, this, uh, this authenticates where Moses was. There's no doubt who he was with. I mean, he wasn't with an angel. He wasn't with some group of other guys, and they were just hanging out, playing cards, or doing something like that for 40 days. He comes out shining from the presence of of God, right? And it just authenticates him being with God. It authenticates him as the mediator. And there's just no doubt he was in his presence. Notice in verse 29, there's an aspect of dignity and authority here. Um, in Moses now. Uh, Jesus in the great 
Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, the, God speaks out and says, this is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him, right? And remember, he was shown, I mean, the veil was dropped and he was bright as the sun, the Bible says. And, you know, man, the disciples are just, let's start building tabernacles. I mean, they're just going crazy because all of a sudden his glory was in there. And the father saying, this is my son, listen to him. He's validating his son. And here in this text, he's validating Moses as well as the media, temporary mediator. The Bible says his skin shone, his skin of his face, face shone or radiated. And it's an interesting word. I looked it up. And it's the same word we get for horns, the Hebrew word. So I think the idea here is that the radiation wasn't just this one glowing thing, but it was spikes of radiation coming off of him from the presence of God. And look, this is secondary radiation. <laughs> Can you imagine the direct radiation of being in the presence of God? What a vivid picture that is, flashes of the brightness of God coming off the face of Moses. Look with me at verse 30. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So change was his appearance. The people pulled back from him. And notice in, this, in verse 30, his own brother Aaron, he seems greatly affected by this as he goes to greet him. 31 and 32, then Moses called them and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation uh, returned to him, and Moses spoke to them, and afterward all of the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. So finally this small group of leaders approach Moses, and then eventually the nation approaches Moses, and Moses again, by virtue of his authority as a covenant mediator, he begins to communicate, this is what God says. Remember, they had not yet had the blueprints to the tabernacle. They had not yet had the blueprints of what the, the priesthood would look like. He couldn't get that done because he came off the mountain the first time and they're worshiping a bull calf and down, and then, the, of course, the, the commandments were broken at that time. And so here, now he begins to tell them this is what God wants. Hear how our holy God is going to reside with us bull calf worshipers. <laughs> He's got a plan to be with us. And we got to get building. And we got to get to work here. And instead of giving your earrings and all that ornaments to worship, we're going to give that to the Lord. And we're going to build him a tabernacle just the way he instructed. And so Moses is telling that, verse 33, when Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. The structure of the sentence there, the syntactical structure of the sentence, gives the idea that Moses, whenever he spoke with the people, he uncovered it, and when he wasn't speaking, he covered it. It was just a constant. Anytime he got in front of them, he uncovered it because he's showing his authority. This is coming from God. And then when he wasn't with them, he had to put it over there because he couldn't be in their midst. And he veiled his face when he wasn't telling them what God said. And certainly, this shows the humility of Moses as well. Obviously, he, he didn't want to frighten the people. I think he's a kind leader. I think uh, certainly Moses had his moments of frustration. It cost him dearly. But I think he was a kind man, and he didn't want to frighten the people. And I think that's one of it. But it also says something about the people. They were afraid of God. They were perfectly fine with Moses being their mediator, and they did not want to come close to even the shining face, let alone God himself. And yet God told them, look, to love me with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. There's a personal relationship even in the Old Testament, but it seems the nation was hesitant to that. And so maybe, maybe they didn't deal with their sin right, and probably that's kind of obvious, right? Because they get up against the land not very far from it. They're going to go up right up to the border here. They're going to send spies in, and guess what they're going to do? They're going to reject the word of God. When you're afraid of God and... You don't want to know him and study him and be in his presence. When the truth finally comes down, you're probably going to go the opposite way. And that's what they do. Verse 34 and 35, but whenever Moses went in to before the Lord to speak with him, that's God, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, uh, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, so he'd lift the veil, right? 
that his skin of Moses had shown so Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went to speak with him. And so Moses continues to meet with the Lord, probably in the tent of meetings now um, that had been set up outside the camp. The tabernacle is going to go in the center of it, but this was set up outside. That's a whole teaching that the Lord was providing a way to come in their midst. And when the Lord gave him a message to pass on to the nation, he would unveil his face. He'd be radiating to authenticate his message, and he would speak to them. But just notice the spiritual slowness that the nation had. They were slow to accept the things of God. And rebellion came quickly each and every time. And I think this leads me to my last thought this morning, number three. The greater covenant shines the glory of Christ in our hearts. I want to put away Exodus 34. And I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with me. And we'll finish here tonight. Because Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, takes full advantage of this situation to preach the gospel. And there's quite an understanding here of how to relate this and understand this even in today's uh, church economy, I guess. Verse 7, we'll pick it up there for the sake of time. Notice what Paul says and what he, how he refers to the old covenant. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, of his face fading as it was, right? We know it didn't stay. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? So uh, quickly you can begin to see uh, here in the same way Paul saw that the Jewish rejection of Christ with the same spiritual slowness that their ancestors had that was displayed on Mount, Mount Zion, now them, just like their forefathers, they, they had trouble looking into the face of Moses. And if they had the trouble looking into the face of Moses, guess how difficult that's going to be to see Christ. And, and Paul's relating this. He says, look, how, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even m- more with glory? That's the third member of the Trinity who is God himself and spirit coming and dwelling among us with all the glory of God. That's his job to shine the glory of God into our hearts. And yet there's this rejection of Christ just like the the Hebrews slow to pull close to God, slow to love him with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. So the Jews did with Jesus and eventually they couldn't and they cried for him to be crucified. Look at verses 9 through 11. For if the ministry of condemnation, notice it's called the ministry of death, and then it's called the ministry of condemnation. This is why we believe in biblical theology, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is all rushing towards the new. Because there's only one who can fulfill it. And so this is why we're very careful not to get caught up in Old Covenant things. They're all pointing to something greater. But I, I, so many times I've looked... When we did our ministry out west, our start first 10, 15 years were out in the most rulers areas. And we ran into those who love the Old Testament in, in not just the beauty of it, which I love the Old Testament, that's why I teach in it, but they never saw the Christocentric nature, what we call biblical theology of it. And they were tied up in so many things. And they were joyless people, and they were people that put so much weight upon their children and the way they lived because they had the ministry of condemnation instead of the ministry of liberty. Which one do you want? <laughs> Let's see. Death or life? I think one of our own guys said, give me, you know, give me life, don't give me death. I mean, think about this. This is such a beautiful passage. If the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. And it was glorious, Right? I mean, Moses shone. He was in the presence of God. This was God's instruction to the nation to help them see that they were sinners and they needed God. They needed to depend on him. He, it's, it was glorious. But it does not hold a candle to the work of the Spirit. I mean, let me say this. It doesn't hold a flame torch because <laughs> there's such a difference in the brightness of the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit. Look at verse 10. For indeed, what had glory in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. 
Can I say this? The new covenant snuffs out the old. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law. Hebrews chapter 9, 10. He must come in and complete and fulfill the first to usher in the greater covenant. And so here the Bible's teaching us, and, and Paul knows that here the most religious people on the planet are, have the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of death. They're going to die because they're staying under that old covenant. That old covenant was telling us, screaming at us, there's someone better, there's a better lamb, there's one that can save you. Oh no, we're going to keep this and keep that and we're not going to eat that and we're certainly not going to be with you. That will certainly get us into the kingdom. Ministry of death, Paul calls it. Notice, he says in verse 11, for if that which fades away, remember, Moses did not shine his face till he died. (laughs) We actually don't, we see this just leave him after a while. They start into the desert and they start heading for the promised land. There's no... There's no sign that he had this. He had it every time he met with the Lord, and it fed, it fade away. He would go meet with it again, it would come back. It didn't remain here. That, for that which fades away was with glory. And it was glorious, right? He was with God, and the reflection of his glory is radiated upon him. But much more than which remains is in glory. We have something greater. Look at verse 12. Therefore, having such hope, we use great boldness in our speech. You can see I'm getting a little excited up here. I love the gospel. I love the fact that Jesus died for my past, present, and future sins. I love the fact that Christ completed the law on my behalf. And I love the fact that the gospel has given me a desire to now live for him, live in a way that's pleasing and honor to him. I don't always do it, but I can come right back to my great new covenant God who rescued me through his son and say, Oh, Lord. Your son died for that. Forgive me. Cause me to have a desire to not live that way. You keep coming back to the great shining beauty of Christ in the new covenant, don't we? Verse 13. 12, we use great boldness in our speech. We proclaim this new covenant. This is what we send missionaries out all over the world to do. And we preach here. But verse 13, are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't get hung up on something that's fading away. We had some friends who were caught up in Sabbatarianism, and he owned a big ranch, and I wrote for them, and there was, they, they were nice people, good moral people. Man, sundown Friday, that was it. Nothing happens. I mean, there was no phone call, nothing. Everything shut down completely. And if they were with you, one time some, some girls, I, was in a, I taught a Bible study that some of the girls went away and they actually took the wife of them and she locked the whole group down from Friday night sundown till sun, Saturday sundown because she said, we can't do anything. Because if you do it, you bring it into my presence and I'm sin with you. And they said it was the most miserable weekend they'd ever had. You try to live the law out, you're going to make you, probably, you might like it because you feel, you feel proud or something, but you're going to make everybody around you feel miserable. It's fading away, brothers and sisters. Why chase those things? Now, is there good things in the law? I, I taught through the Ten Commandments, right? You remember that series. <laughs> There's some great stuff, good stuff. We saw it all in the New Testament, right? We're not saying the law does not have its value. There's wonderful things in there. But our hope is in Christ alone, isn't it? Verse 14 But their minds were hardened. That's exactly what happens when you try to produce a legal standing before God on your own. Your heart will get hardened. You'll harden everybody else around you. And legalism will be in your home, your church, and everywhere else. For until this very day, notice what Paul, man, this is why they wanted to kill Paul as much as they wanted to kill Christ. Because he preached about Christ. For until this day... At the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's only removed in Christ. So that same darkness lays on them. Find someone who thinks they have proven themselves before God, you'll find darkness. You'll find a veil to truth. Oh, but then the great conjunction here in verse 15. But to this day, When Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart, 
but here, there's the conjunction that was earlier after verse 16. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. <laughs> I mean, how many people think, you know, just if you witness it all and talk to people, hey, can you tell me what you think about God? You're going to get some of the wildest answers. And it just, the farthest unbiblical views of God, just ask them that question and they'll just come up with these crazy views. It's all coming from their mind. They don't have the spirit of God to lead them to the word to understand who God is. So they come up with these crazy things. Well, he's a God. Our founding fathers of our nation, many of them were deists. They just they believed there was a God, but there's no way you could have this personal relationship with him. Much like the nation of Israel, oh, Moses, you go to, we don't want a personal relationship. And so, but when Christ, look at that veil is taken away. Oh, I love verse 17. Look at this. For the Lord is, for, now the Lord is the spirit. And look at this. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. <laughs> New covenant brings the spirit. Read Acts 1 and 2. Oh, it's all tied to the resurrection. Spirit's waiting for the resurrection, birth of the church, the indwelling of the spirit. Boom, we're going to hit. Look at it just a little bit on Sunday. And such joy comes with that. Look at the word liberty there. You could write in that word right there, freedom. Freedom. And what's the opposite of freedom? Slavery. You want to stay under the law? You want to keep the veil on? You want to do that? Stay in slavery. Because James tells us if you break one, you break them all. That's slavery. Imagine walking around with that eggshell. Well, you don't even get out the door, do you? Verse 18. Oh, look at him. He's bringing us in on this. But we all, that should be circled in your Bible. It is in mine. We all, that's you and me, brothers and sisters, with unveiled faces. The veil's been pulled back. Oh, I remember the, did you wear a veil, babe, when we got married? Yeah, I remember that. You, your dad pulled it back. I'm like, wow, there she is. <laughs> Um, unveiled faces. I was smiling so hard my face cramped that day. But notice this, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What is it? What, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? A reflection. So he says, look, remember, I started with that verse that we gain the glory of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, you gain the glory of Christ. Look what has happened. Now when we look in the mirror, where's the mirror? Hint, hint, it's in front of me on your lap. The Bible, when you look into the Word of God, it reflects the glory of Christ. So when you and I look into this, this mirror, this James speaks about that way, we look in it and behold, there's the Lord. And notice what he's doing to us. He's transforming us, being transformed, present continual tense. There's a constant transforming that's going on. Positionally, positional holiness, ready, holy and blamely, the moment we die after salvation to be with the Lord for eternity. But there is practical holiness as God grows us along more into the image of his son. And notice it starts from glory to glory. And I think that first glory is new birth. And I think the second glory is eternity. He's growing us. And he takes you through difficult trials. He even uses your worst choices and mistakes to bring it about if you'll repent of it. And he'll make us like his son. That's, that's the glory of the new covenant, isn't it? Notice, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The new covenant tells us that at salvation, the very Spirit of God indwells us. It's not just marking us out for a job like it did in the Old Testament, identifying people, coming upon them for certain things that God wanted done. He now dwells permanently. And when it began, it came with a rushing noise. And the 120 people in that upper room were filled with the Spirit. And that was the birth of the church. It was the birth of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And it was staying permanently on those people, not coming and going any longer. And that's the mark of the new covenant. We have the Spirit. And so with unveiled faces, we worship the Lord. I just have a minute left, so I want to give you just a quick list. I said, I thought, well, how do I, how do I have an unveiled heart that reflects the glory of Christ? Let me give you seven things. I know I can do this real quickly. First, tie your affections, tie your affections of Christ to the Word and your affections for the Word to Christ. Did you catch that? I know I'm running out of time, but tie your affections to Christ and that in Christ to the word of God. Never separate them. So that's biblical theology. So when you read your Old Testament, you should be thinking Christ. You should be, this is all pointing forward to him. And so tie your affections for Christ to the word. A lot of people love Jesus out there, man. Jesus is my buddy. Well, how do you know that? Well, they told me at church. 
They don't know their Bibles. And I'm not saying they may not be saved, but you don't want to stumble and fall. Well, tie your affections from Christ to the Word of God. Don't let those break. Number two, ask the Spirit to penetrate your heart with the power of Scripture. Moses said, show me your glory. We say, show me your word. (laughs) Let me see it here, Lord. And you begin to study the scriptures and you see the glory of God. You cannot read John 1, 14 and not be just overwhelmed that Jesus Christ is all the radiance of God. Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1, passage after passage to see that. He'll penetrate your heart through the scriptures. Show me your glory. That's what the Spirit does. Listen, he has the spotlight ministry, right? His job is to shine Jesus Christ in your heart through the word. That's what he does. Don't quench him. You want to see the glory? You want to unveil face? You want all that? Don't quench the Spirit. He'll show, he'll shine the glory of Christ in you. Three, allow the word of God to penetrate your conscience and reprove your waywardness. Every one of us fall into waywardness, myself included. And so the word of God has to get to Scott. It has to get to his heart. He can't just stand here and tell everybody else to do. The word of God has to penetrate my conscience and my heart. Is the word of God really the word of God? The way you know it is to you is that it gets to your heart. Of course, it is the word of God. But you know that you believe it because it got to your heart. You feel you, you convicted over things. You're going, here's what the Bible says, but I'm not doing that. Can't be the Bible's fault. Can't be the gospel's fault. Can't be Christ's fault. God, penetrate my heart. It's hard. It's got callous laying over it. Penetrate it. Four, come to God each and every time through Christ alone. Now, now you say, well, you're getting saved each time? No, I think we still come each and every time through Christ alone because you and I always have a little baggage of stuff we want to bring. Oh, by the way, Lord, I want to show you what I did this week. I went to all three Easter services. That should be a gold star. Come Christ alone. Have you served the Lord in the kitchen, in the pulpit, in the safety, in children's ministry? Whatever you serve the Lord in, serve him through Christ alone. Let him be your motivation. It's not easy when preachers go long down there. I've got to hurry. Five, fight the small view of sin because that will deliver a small view of Christ. Fight a small view of sin because it will deliver a small view of Christ. That sin, uh, this is, uh, you can borrow this. I probably stole it from somebody myself. Lord, that sin put your son on the cross. Mm, that's a different view of, well, you know, if you wouldn't have given me her, I wouldn't have done that. Right? Small, sin, small view of sin, small view of God. Um, Spurgeon said this, many are troubled because the gospel interferes with their sin. I just read that the other day. Hear that again? Many are troubled because the gospel interferes with their sin. Six, let your biblical view of Christ and his word make the world look foolish to you. If we study a biblical worldview of what's going on in our world, we should go, that's foolish. Not an arrogant there go, we should remember, there go I if it wasn't for the grace of God. But if you have a biblical worldview, you go, oh yeah, guys, that's really going to work. God does not care for that, and he'll judge that. Right? And we have to do that. Be careful with uh, self-righteousness there. Um, remember, this world wants to lure you. Well, a biblical view of Christ will help you understand that. And then lastly here, never think of heaven without Jesus being the only means to get there. <laughs> Never think of heaven and all its glory. And I know some of us are longing to go and want to see those who have gone before us. But never think of it without the one who gets you there. <laughs> Isn't he glorious? Amen? Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the Old Testament. It's so fun to study it, Lord, and see at all picturing Jesus Christ. Paul took that great chapter in in Exodus 34 and just unpacked the problem with the modern-day Jew in his time. Their face was veiled. They couldn't see Jesus because they saw how great they were as lawkeepers. So, Lord, we want to see Jesus and bring that veil back and let us reflect his glory of what he's done through studying and, and knowing and obeying the word of God. 
Lord, help us in this difficult world we live in to find great joy in the gospel. May we not diminish your work in any way, but give you all the credit, Lord. Thanks for these dear loved ones here today. In Jesus' name, amen.